two people who will be watching you after that. Yes, uh, welcome to the Sirius seminar for February 28th. Uh, today we have with us Dr. Bhavani Thracingham, uh, who is a professor of computer science and director of the Cybersecurity Research Center at the uh, Eric Johnson School of Engineering and Computer Science at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, Bhavani has a very distinguished background. She is a fellow of not only the IEEE, but also the American Association for Advancement of Science and the British Computer Society. Uh, I think probably if, if she's not the only person who can claim all of that, she's probably the first we've had here that can claim that. Uh, Bhavani, before joining University of Texas at Dallas, was with the MITRE Corporation. Uh, in fact, was the one who hired me into the MITRE Corporation several years ago. Uh, has her PhD from the University of Bristol. Uh, a quite distinguished career uh, working in uh, information security in general and specifically in data, data security and database security. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, uh, Chris, and your colleagues for inviting me, um, Randy, and others for inviting me. Uh, to give this seminar at uh, Purdue University. And I'm also glad to have been introduced by Chris. As I said, Chris and I worked very closely for five years, from 1995 until like six years, 2001, when Chris was at MITRE. And about that time, Chris came to, he was very, you know, you all are very fortunate to have Chris here. Uh, and I went to Washington to NSF for three years. And then after that, I moved to University of Texas in Dallas. So. What I'm going to talk about is you know, data mining for security applications, uh, in particular, one aspect of it, detecting malicious uh, executables. And this is joint work uh, with my colleague, he's an associate professor, Latifa Khan, and we are co-supervising a student, Mehdi Masood, so as much of it is Mehdi's pa uh, paper, I mean his research, and Professor Khan is the main advisor of Mehdi, so I'm a co-advisor. Now, I'm going to give the context as to why we are doing this particular work. It's part of a larger project at the University of Texas at Dallas. Okay, so it's part of, as I said, um, a larger project, which is assured information sharing. And in fact, today when I was talking to Professor Gafur, um, he's also doing some aspect, you know, developing a framework for data sharing. So it's a very uh, important and popular area, especially after 9-11. Uh, if you read the 9-11 Commission report, it states that uh, the world is sort of moving, or the Department of Defense and the intelligence agencies are migrating from uh, a need-to-know environment to a need-to-share environment. Need-to-know is sort of very strict controls. Even if you have the authorization to get some piece of data, you only get the data if you have really this urgency and a true need-to-know. Whereas need-to-share environment, the whole idea is if you need the data, okay, so we share it and then worry about the consequences. Okay, because the person may not be authorized, but the person may have a need for the data to carry out these operations, or the person may not, um, you know, or you may want to do the analysis and then share the data. Okay, so that's uh, the assured information sharing, 
and also it's very closely related to you know, trust management and in fact you all have one of the experts on trust management and negotiation professor bertino and then there is this whole area so so we are also I'm, i'll explain to you what we are doing here defensive operations and offensive operations so particular this particular uh, presentation i'm giving is when the partners are untrustworthy okay the next chart is going to explain and this research is being funded by two sources the air force office of scientific research and we are also getting funding from the texas enterprise funds which is coming from the governor of um, texas another point i wanted to mention i mean this whole area of data mining i have to thank uh, chris clifton for it because when he joined mitre one area we really uh, try to promote and try to work and you know for mitre's customers and do research is data mining and in particular something called security preserving data mining which is something that chris started which then became the sole area of privacy preserving data mining okay so this is our vision for assured information sharing you have different agencies uh, air force army navy or you have different uh, organizations such as a coalition partners us uk and australia or us france and japan or even us china and russia because we have they all have to work together to fight the global war on terror so in terms of sharing data each organization is going to export or publish we are using a publish and subscribe model publish the data and the policies and then at the coalition level they are all talking to each other and you know deciding what information to share and so on okay so there are four uh, situations or four scenarios we focused on three scenarios and then we have um, a new assistant professor join and he's focusing on the fourth scenario okay so what is the first one the first scenario is trustworthy partners in the case of trustworthy partners we are assuming that all the partners are trustworthy such as army navy air force or us uk australia again this is an assumption we are making i i i mean i don't know really in in real world whether the, these are really trustworthy or not but you know in general we trust each other but we don't want to share everything we are enforcing policies okay so that's sort of sort of the simple situation the second situation is semi trustworthy partners i think it's better for me to explain in the next chart okay how these four things what we are doing in each of these areas so semi trustworthy partners could be maybe us maybe us may maybe france japan whatever then we also have to work with untrustworthy partners so maybe i don't know us and maybe some other countries or it could be us uh, some companies in us okay so maybe microsoft and oracle right i mean they all want to be the uh, the big person in databases but they are in some cases they have to situations they have to work together and of course this trust levels could change one situation a partner could be trustworthy another uh, and next year the partner could become untrustworthy so what are the approaches we are taking the approaches we are taking um are for the trustworthy partners right what we are doing here we've got some medicaid claims data okay and what we are doing here is medicaid claims data is coming from the inspector general of texas so medicaid claims data we have since 2000 of every person in texas uh, claiming um, medicaid claims 
okay, all the illnesses and so on. So what we are doing, since we don't have the Air Force data because much of it is classified, and this is in an unclassified environment, what we are doing here is enforcing policies, and here our policies are expressed in XML. So Arif, uh, Professor Gafur, it's sort of um, somewhat, uh, I think it's sort of a much less um, sort of complex, uh, more simpler policies than what you you are envisioning in your in your research. So we are enforcing policies and we are determining uh, how much information is lost. Remember after 9-11 we said when the countries were working together, if only the countries had shared the data, the, sorry, the agencies, FBI and CIA had shared the data. But so, but still they have their own policies, so they are not sharing all the data freely. So I have a postdoc uh, Mamun Award, actually he's, he's finished now, December, he January he joined the university um, in, in Dubai, and then uh, Professor Khan, and we have a number of student workers, they're at a the master's level, and so they are developing this uh, prototype where policies are in, so we looked at quantification, and then we presented it last year at a, at a conference, and now what we are working is to develop this, uh, you know, prototype to show how information is exchanged and how policies are enforced and so on, okay? So that's the trustworthy partners. The second scenario is, uh, sorry, semi-trustworthy partners. We are not so sure what these partners are doing. And, um, and so what we want to do here is try to extract as much information as possible from them without giving out information about ourselves, okay? So this part of the project, Professor Murat Kantasioglu, he is, you know, he's not a stranger, he finished his PhD here under Chris Clifton, and so he is uh, leading, we have a joint student, Ryan Layfield, and he's a PhD student, so Murat is working with him on applying game theory and probing techniques, okay? And so they've just finished a paper and they want to submit it to the IFIP uh, data security conference. So again, the whole idea is to play games and get as much as possible uh, from the partner, but not give out information about yourself. Okay. Now the third topic is what I'm going to present to you today. So data mining for defensive and offensive operations. So here I'm assuming untrustworthy partners. Okay. So one has to be a little careful here. So the thing is, untrustworthy partners, uh, so what are we doing here? So, so we want to do research that's going to help the Department of Defense, but at the same time, it has to also satisfy the research community. So, so what, we, what we did here was, okay, so our partners, so Latifa was very interested in data mining for uh, intrusion detection, malicious code detection, you know, he's sort of our in-house data mining expert. So he wants to apply all these techniques. He's applied for bioinformatics, so he's really interested in security. So for the defensive operations, we have to defend ourselves from our enemies because the enemies are going to plant uh, viruses and worms and Trojan horses and so on. So we want to, we are applying data mining techniques to defend ourselves. As, again, what do we mean by defend? We want to, again, defense could be, it's either prevention or it could even be detection. And we are focusing mostly on detection. So if you detect that the enemy is planting viruses, then we want to, you know, take appropriate measures. But our sponsor is also interested in offensive operations. That means we want to find out what the enemy is up to. So currently, so this part of the project is finished, and what Latifa is doing now is building honeypots, okay, to attract the enemy 
to develop some scheme so an enemy gets attracted. Okay, so that part is just beginning. And offensive is that we also want to plant, we want to attack the enemy's machines, essentially. So that is a bit tricky. It's almost like saying, you know, attack your, your, your colleague's machine and find out what he's doing. So I can't give that in a, you know, in a class project to see, you know, what the colleague is doing. So we have to figure out a way. So this project is a three-year project. We are in the second year. Next year will be the third year. And so, so next year, we, so this year is going to be honeypots, and next year we have to figure out uh, what to do in terms of finding out what the enemy is uh, up to. The fourth part of the piece, which we just started, is some, uh, something we had Professor Kevin Hamlin. He joined us from Cornell as an assistant professor. He's a, we are co-supervising a student, uh, Natalie, and we are looking at peer-to-peer -peer communication and assigning dy dynamic trust levels. And they just finished a paper and trying to figure out she's doing the implementation. So, so this is sort of our main assured information sharing. And then we are just starting, Murat is starting a project with uh, Professor Bertino on data provenance. And we are also having some things on geospatial data <coughs> management. And we are also interested in doing RFID. There are two separate areas. So uh, assured information sharing. Okay. So now I'm going to focus on bullet number three, and even there, data mining for defensive operations, and in there, malicious code detection. Okay. So what we are doing here, okay, so what are malicious executables? So I, some of the things, because of time, I've already spoken for 15 minutes, and I have about 30 minutes left, or 25 minutes, and then I want to leave time for questions and discussions. Okay, so, and, and again, so uh, one thing to note, the student has done much of the work, and uh, as I said, the main advisor for this project is um, uh, Professor Khan. So um, some questions, if I can answer, I will try. Others, I can, you know, always, uh, you know, you can send me email, and I can also, I'm going to leave my email with you and Professor Khan's email, so you can, you know, send emails to either one of us. Okay, so what are malicious executables? Again, harming, you know, I'm going to skip the you know, virus, exploiting denial of service, flooders, sniffers. So many of you are in computer security. This is sort of one of the earliest things you all will study. Uh, incurs great loss. And main thing, uh, one thing I wanted to say, uh, the, because I was in Washington for three years, before, 2000, before the code red. And when was code red? I think it was, what, 2001? Sometime around that time. Before that, there wasn't as much money that was spent on information security research. Then came the Code Red and 9-11, and it was only after that that NSF started programs uh, in information security. Okay, so that itself cost 2.6 billion. Malicious code detection, there are traditional approaches, signature-based, and here it requires signatures to be generated by human experts. Okay, and there's also behavioral-based. So traditional is uh, signature-based. Automated detection approaches, behavioral, here you analyze the behaviors, source, destination, address, attachment type, and so on. And there is also content-based, which is um, analyze the content of the malicious executable codes. So there is some work going on in CMU, and there is also the earliest work on engram analysis is by Malouf, and so our research is more sort of related to, sort of follows, you know, what Malouf is doing on data mining for features and using machine learning, okay? So, so we are narrowing on this, this last part, okay? So Malouf has done, as I said, some very interesting work, and I've, I've got, uh, 
reference to his papers, it was actually presented, uh, Malouf's work, Colter and Malouf, Learning to Detect Malicious, it was published in 2004, 10th ACMC KDD conference. Okay, so that's the work that has influenced us. So, what new ideas have we, we proposed? Okay, so content-based approaches, they only consider uh, machine-executable. And so, is it possible to consider higher-level source codes for malicious code detection? Okay, so the work of uh, Malouf is that they are looking at binary code and they are mining that code and detecting a malicious code. So our uh, goal is to see, can we, uh, ideally we want to um, analyze the source code and that's difficult because we won't get source code. But there are some programs that can transfer, you know, translate binary code into assembly code. So then can we disassemble the binary executable and retrieve the assembly program? And then what features can we extract? And how can you combine that with machine code features? Okay. So uh, our feature extraction, we have binary n-gram features, sequence of n consecutive binary, bytes of binary executable. And then we are also looking at um, assembly n-gram features. So we're combining three types of features. One is the binary feature. So we are doing some, what some of the others have done, such as Maloof. And then assembly n-gram features uh, with the assembly code sequence of n-consecutive assembly instructions. And then we are also using system API call features. And that is dynamic link library function call information. So all three are assembled together to get these results. So this, these two, we are published in two papers. One is appearing in the PAKDD, the Pacific Asia Data Mining Conference, and the other will be presented at ICC. That's the uh, Conference on Communications. Okay, so we have a hybrid feature retrieval model. Why are we calling it hybrid? Because we are looking, building things from binary code, assembly code, as well as from, uh, from the linking libraries. So collect training samples of normal and malicious code. So again, it's a typical data mining um, approach. Extracting features, training a classifier and building a model, and testing a model against the uh, samples. Okay, so this is the um, environment. For training, uh, okay, so we have the machine executables, right? So ma machine executables is hexadecimal dump, and you get the bytecode. From the bytecode, we are extracting features based on n-grams, okay? And the machine executables, we are also using um, some disassembly programs, uh, some commercial tools, as well as um, some open source tools, and developing, uh, extracting the assembly programs. And from assembly programs also, we are using n-grams, and then we are also looking at some of the function call information all three are combined together and we are extracting features. And from the features, you generate feature vectors and then you develop classifiers. Classifiers will essentially say, is this uh, piece of code fitting in um, malicious code or is it not malicious code? Okay. So this is a system that we developed. And the testing, okay, once you do the training, the testing is, you know, you have all these executables. We develop the assembly programs and then you compute the feature vectors from the programs and we test with the classifier that we have developed and the classifier will predict is it a malicious code or not 
and we have a number of um, number of results okay so some of these things i'm going to i mean you can i'll write the email addresses you can send us email and we'll send all our three papers so what we are doing here is the feature extraction binary n-grams so n-grams could be two grams four grams six grams and so on so given an 11 byte sequence uh, you have you know each one is hexadecimal representation so zero one will be one byte two three is another byte four five 11 byte, 11 byte sequence, there are like, what, 50 million of n-grams can be generated. So that's a problem. So it's a very large data set. There are too many features in terms of millions. So what are our solutions? One is to use secondary memory, uh, develop efficient data structures. That itself is not sufficient. So, um, okay, even in assembly n-gram features, uh, there are several instructions, not as many, several features, not as many as binary code, but it's still quite a lot. So you have instructions like push EEX, move, whatever, and then you can develop the two grams, which is shown in the next chart. And then there is, uh, for, I mean, this is going to be put on your website, right? So those of you all want to look at the more details, you can try and figure out that these are n grams. And so the sample problem you know, same, same problem, same problem as the binary, lots of uh, features. So, in the feature selection, what we are doing is trying to select the best K features using some entropy calculations. So, selection criteria is something called information gain. And gain of an attribute A on a collection of examples is given by, okay, so how much gain is the attribute A having? And I won't go into the details of this. Our paper is explaining. And so essentially what we are doing is those features that have more gain are the ones that are selected, okay? And the rest are discarded. So that way, the features that are selected, you know, are far less than selecting all of the other features. So essentially what happens is that Okay, now I'll show you some of our experimental results and comparing it with others. Uh, data set, we had, again, all of the data sets. One thing to note, though, is that, you know, getting very good data sets is, um, is a challenge, and um, as many of you all would know. So our data sets are obtained from the various websites. So uh, data set one, we had 838 malicious, 599 benign, and data set two has so many malicious, so many benign. And disassembly, you know, we got from, oh, we got, we used tools, PEDI assemble. So these are generate assembly code, we, have, we are using tools, okay? And then we have training and testing. Okay, so what are our results? HFS is hybrid feature set. BFS is binary feature set, which is sort of duplicating some of the uh, examples, uh, results that were obtained by Maloof. And then AFS is assembly feature set. So the new idea that we have come up here is this assembly feature set approach and the hybrid feature set where you want to combine different, uh, different approaches, binary, assembly, and the libraries. So if you look at the classification accuracy, uh, under same conditions and same data sets. Uh, the hybrid seems to be performing the best. Okay, so now we are trying to figure out why is it, I mean, the answer seems obvious, but again, we want to look at, sometimes it's data mining uh, tools, uh, that some of the problems is that we can't, you know, 
finding explanations is really is really hard. And that I like some feedback, you know, from people like Chris and Elisa and others here. Okay, so we had hybrid feature set, uh, hybrid, we had 93.4 with one gram. So average, let's look at the average, okay, 96.3 uh, on a sphere of different, uh, so classification accuracy. But if you look at just binary, it is only 89. Uh, what is a little confusing is that assembly, we thought could be better, but assembly was giving us 86. But the part is the assembly uh, with one gram binary was, seemed to be really good. But overall, we are finding that the hybrid, uh, yeah, hybrid data set seemed to be uh, for data set one as well as data set two, hybrid seemed to provide the best, uh, best results. Binary seemed to be performing slightly better than the assembly features. Okay, so this is um, the data set two area under the ROC curve on different feature sets. Um, and okay, under different conditions, we, we were obtaining the test results. Okay, so and there is a data set three false positive and false negative rates on different feature sets. Uh, data set one, we got uh, 5.4 false positive and false negative 2.6. Uh, the binary seemed to be overall performing better. Sorry, binary was 17.8. Okay, so binary and assembly were not that much difference, whereas the hybrids seem to give us much better performance. Okay, so, and again, some of the technical details and the algorithms are given in the, in the paper. And I'll be happy to send it to you. Okay, so future plans for this part of the project. Uh, system calls seems to be very useful. Need to consider frequency of calls so, and also detect malicious code by program slicing. Okay, and... Okay, so the second part of the presentation, I have about 10, okay, 10, 15 minutes, and I want to go through this. And the third part of the presentation is more, um, you know, checking email worms, so I'll skip that part. The second part, I'd like to present that and get some feedback as well. Data mining to detect buffer overflow as well as, um, as well as worm detection, okay? So... The goal, again, is intrusion detection for worm attacks and buffer overflow attacks. So this part, we got some, uh, some jointly Peng Liu and Senshen Zhu from Penn State. Uh, they have been collaborating in the sense that they provided us with something called SIGFREE. So they have a paper that was presented in the Usenext, which we found to be very useful. And so we contacted them, and so they... You know, this is sort of a joint joint work, although the, the data mining part is something that University of Texas Dallas provided. Okay, so what are we contributing here? Worm code detection by data mining coupled with reverse engineering, and then buffer overflow detection by combining data mining with static analysis. So here we are making some fairly strong assumptions. Now, many of you would have heard of buffer overflow. A situation when a fixed size buffer is overflown, you know, by a larger sized input. So how does it ha happen? You have an input string, malicious or due to some error, the red part, right, overrides the light blue as well as some of the dark blue parts. So what are the consequences? Then what? So return addresses could be overwritten, okay, and you could have some catastrophic situations, 
with buffer overflow. This is a problem that has been studied extensively by programming language experts. So, he says, so what? Program a crash or the attacker can execute his arbitrary code. So, attacker can have his code in there so that the program can get executed. It can now execute any system function. Once it gets in there, it has access to all of the system functions and all of the critical code, and so it can really open a back door to take full control of the, of the victim. Okay, so what has been done stopping buffer overflow, both prevention and detection? Prevention approaches, you know, you can find bugs in the source code, you analyze the source code, bad programming practices, and... Um, operating system hardware modification, detection approaches, capture code running symptoms, okay, automatically generate signatures of buffer overflow attacks. Okay. A detection approach. Now this is a assumption that was made in the in the Sigfree work by Penn State, Peng Liu and Session Zhu. What they are saying is attack messages usually contain code while normal messages contain data that's based on observations. Okay, normal messages are containing data, attack messages usually contain code. So, what we are then saying, okay, can we use data mining to, this to classify, again, classification problem, to classify is this data or is this code? So, we have simplified the problem, okay, the whole buffer overflow problem to this now. Okay. Is it, does it contain code? Does it contain data? Problem to solve, distinguish code from data. So this is the work of Sigfree and they have published the Sigfree work in the Usenext conference. So again, I can give reference to their, to their work, uh, Peng Liu and uh, Zunshan Chen. And that's, uh, I, I, don't know which year. I think it was published somewhere sometime 2003 or 4. Okay, so a signature-free buffer overflow attack blocker. It was Usenext Security July 2006, so it was published last year. Okay, so we found that work quite interesting. And, you know, so I won't go into their, you know, this sort of describes their algorithm, which we have briefly summarized in our papers. So our solution again is we are using SIGFREE, part of the SIGFREE code as a disassembly program because we cannot use these commercial tools for the disassembly because commercial tools assume that, or the tools out there assume that there is a header in the executable files. But in this malicious code, there, may not, there is not a header. So SIGFREE, the, 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 the interesting thing about SIGFREE is that it can make these assumptions and with fairly high accuracy uh, transfer the code into assembly code. So apply data mining, formulate the problem as a classification problem, is it code or data? Collect a set of training examples containing both instances. Again, train the data and we test the model. Okay, so the code blocker model that we have developed, the same thing, training data, we extract features, then train the features, you know, with a classifier. And classifier, we often we use uh, the support vector machine, uh, which we have made some modifications that, uh, that my colleague had developed uh, with one of his former PhD students uh, called DGSOT, some technique he has developed, and that paper is what, you know, we are, we, 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 it's accepted in the very large database journal. 
And so we are using that technique, the tool that we have, to do the classification because in some of our previous papers we have shown it as a higher level of accuracy. Once you develop the model, we do the testing data, feature extraction, test against the model, and then it will predict the class. Again, same thing, feature extraction is a challenge. So feature extraction with the training data, we use disassembly with SIGFREE, okay, because we couldn't do use the other tools out there. And then we do the feature collection with engram and control flow and feature selection. Again, our feature selection is based on the information gain. And information gain is computed based on the entropy. Okay, so essentially we are selecting the, the best features and disregarding some of the other features. And then for the testing, when an incoming request comes in, we do the disassembly and we compute the feature values of the features and then compute the feature set. And that will then tell us is it yes or no, is it code or is it data. Okay, so we apply SIGFREE tool, which was implemented by Zinran Wang, which is, who is a student of Penn Liu. Is he, yeah, or with his assistant professor, I don't know. He's at Penn State. And essentially what the tool will give us is taking uh, the machine code, uh, it will tell us, it will uh, output the assembly code. So whether it's code or data, okay, if it's code, then the assembly code makes sense. If it is data, of course, we get kind of garbage when we translate the data into assembly code. So that's SIGFREE, and we uh, describe that in the paper. Okay, so features are extracted using engram analysis. At the same time, we also are doing control flow analysis when the programs are jumping. So, for instance, if you use an engram, then you know, it's based on this, uh, the sequence, right, from 0, 2, 4, 6, 9, and A, C, E. But if you look at control flow, once you come to number 6, right, then you can, you go to number 9. Uh, okay, so once, you can either go to number, so from number 9, you can either jump to A or you can jump to C. Okay, so we take the control flow into consideration in... Uh, generating the 2 grams. So 2 grams now becomes 0, 2, 2, 4, and then you can see towards the end it, it gets 4, 6, and after 6 it can come to either 6, 9A, or it can go to 9C, and then it goes to CE. Okay, so we take the control flow into consideration of the program, and uh, control flow based engrams analysis, okay, so that's, uh, okay, so if we are using data, Okay, and we generate the assembly code, we get uh, statements like invalid memory reference or undefined register or invalid jump target, or we get things like uh, memory is not, memory references outside the register, or check if the register value is set properly. So we get all kinds of error messages. These are the features if it's for data. But if it's for code, then we'll get the uh, assembly language instructions. Why engram analysis? Uh, similar to what we said earlier and again what Malouf's paper intuition disassembled executables should have a different pattern of instruction usage than disassembled data okay again the whole idea is if it has data it is it's not malicious if it's code then it's malicious so that's the assumption why control flow analysis the intuition there should be no invalid memory references or invalid jump targets so when we talk about code so putting it all together, so the system computes all possible engrams 
and then you select the best k of them using the entropy method and then computing the feature vector for each training example and supply these vectors to the training algorithm. Okay, so the experiments, let's see, we used several data sets from, from various websites. Okay, data set as real traces of normal messages, real attack messages, and some polymorphic shell codes. And I, I really don't quite understand what uh, my student meant by the polymorphic sh shell codes. What my from based on reading the paper, it seems like it's uh, you know uh, it's just another sort of types of data sets. And training and testing, we used support vector machine with the DGSOT that we built in, slightly modified which was published in an earlier paper. And we had so many, with the different data sets, we had so many training cases and so many test cases. Okay. So let's look at the results. We have the control flow measure, control flow based engram feature. Okay. So comparing performance of CFBN features for different N, as N varies. Okay, for the control flow, uh, control flow based engrams feature, and the other one just the control flow feature without the engrams. Okay, so um, so we looked at the, the two methods, and then we are looking at the false accuracy, the false positives, and the false negatives. And as you can see, the the accuracy. Um, you know, the control flow-based engram feature performed much better. Now, we also looked at SIGFREE only. Okay, we took the SIGFREE tool that was developed at Penn State and used our tool. And then we find that our performances in terms of combined accuracy, uh, ours was significantly better than SIGFREED. And it's actually co-authored with the Peng Liu and those who developed uh, Siegfried, and they agree also, okay? And, and then in terms of false positives, we are about the same. They had zero false positives, we had 0 0.3. In terms of false negatives, our techniques uh, seem much better than Siegfried had 61.3% false negative, okay? So... And again, for them uh, co-authoring the paper with us, and that was very important for them to co-author, so they, they agreed with, uh, with the results that we have obtained. So then what is our contribution? Again, a lot of these contributions that we have, this particular part of the research is sort of very applied research, okay? It's not, you know, we haven't sort of, you know, proved theorems or, you know, looked at the complexity. It is very, very much an experimental analysis, and the nature... I, opposed to some of our game theory and our dynamic trust level uh, because this you know this professor call, particular professor is very much you know very interested in you know developing tools and techniques and and uh, you know conducting applied you know applied research we introduced the notion of control flow based engram we combine control flow analysis with data mining to detect code and we have made significant improvements over other methods so again the 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 novelty i would say is the com combined approach. So making improvements over some of the original approaches. So if you look at the original approaches, here are the Malouf's paper using Ngram and Peng Liu's paper developing Siegfried, but we are combining some of the interesting techniques and doing assembly and uh, code, uh, you know, control flow, uh, dynamic library linking, uh, 
uh, and combining all that, we are developing a system that is improved. Okay, so the advantages: fast testing, signature-free operation, the usual advantages. Uh, actually, he, you know, the second is. I mean, I'm still not. I'm not saying that may not be able to detect a completely new type of attack. I really want to remove that. And when I talked to the student yesterday, you know, I didn't have time to remove that. It's it's. It needs samples of attack and normal messages, a lack of data. And I, I wouldn't say that it cannot completely detect a new attack. And future works, again, finding more features, applying dynamic analysis, and also bringing the semantics of the operations in there. Now, I don't know whether we have funding to do this work because we really have to move on to the honeypots this semester unless the Texas Enterprise Funds uh, will fund us to continue this work, you know, this is something that we have to, you know, we, we are, I mean, we have no plans right now to, to work on this part to do the improvements. Uh, references, I think these, as I said, these are the two significant references, and I can send you of other people that our work has been um, influenced a lot. One is the Peng Liu paper, the Penn State paper from uh, uh, Usenix. And the other one is Coulter and Malouf's paper, which was published in CKDD uh, in 2000, 2004. Okay, and I think this one I'm going email worm detection, which was actually carried out before. Currently, the work that we are doing in terms of hybrid models and also the buffer overflow models that has sort of superseded. We started off initially after our work in intrusion detection. Actually, then we started off with email worm detection, and this was the beginning of last year, okay? And as soon as the project started, and I presented this in a, in a, in a workshop at King's College in University of London, and, and so this is sort of over a year old, where we are using email worm detection approaches, uh, you know, feature extraction, machine learning. So I think I'm going to skip this part. And I want to add, okay, so I think I'm going to skip this part and see if uh, uh, conclusions and future work, okay, we have looked at three approaches now, three, uh, essentially we have three techniques, so we can sort of develop, you know, sort of three tools. One is applying the classification directly, okay. The second one, applying dimension reduction, uh, principal component analysis, and then classify. Uh, apply feature selection and then classify. Okay, decision tree we feel as the best performance uh, in terms of the classification methods. Okay, this is for classification. Remember support vector machines and decision trees. Uh, future plans combine content based with behavioral approaches. But what we are more interested right now is to carry out these offensive operations. So this year the focus actually you know we should have started a few months. Uh, a few weeks ago, is to develop these honeypots. And next year, the focus is how can we go and find out what the untrustworthy partner is up to. Okay, so we really want to monitor. It's just like even in the real world, right? With friendly partners, you want to, you know, with, with offensive partners, untrustworthy partners, what we really want to do is... Um, you know, attract them, build honeypots, or in the real world with untrustworthy partners, we want to really figure out what their movements are. 
where are they going, what are they doing, and so on. We want to cover our movements and find out their movements. In the machine, we want that's much harder. We want to find out exactly what the adversary is up to. So we have to essentially go and break into their machines. I should be very careful what I say. I don't think we can do that part, so we have to try and figure out how we want to develop the offensive operations. So for questions, I want to write uh, my email address and my colleague's email address. So my email address is, it's actually my first name dot last name. At. So if you would like copies of any of our papers, Actually, there are three papers in this in in this in this part, and my my colleague is. You have very nice handwriting. <laughs> oh, L this is L, okay, L K H A N. Were you serious when you said yeah, nice handwriting? Very much. <laughs> okay, so. Again, if you can take it down. And one other thing I wanted to mention, okay, all of these, which I didn't, uh, because you've got the expert here on privacy, you know, privacy-preserving data mining, and then there are also other people who have done a lot more on privacy than I have, although I kind of started some of this area back in, uh, you know, 10 on inference problem, and when I was at NSF privacy problem, Elisa has done some very good work, and now I hear Sunil's doing work on privacy, and even um, Walid is doing some work on you know, some work on privacy, you said, right? And Sunil's doing quite a bit of work, he said. So privacy, but I have got different, uh, you know, okay, so the, the privacy is a major concern here, not in terms of, uh, because we are using data mining for, for cyber security, okay? So again, some processes may want to be private, okay? Uh, in the real world, when we do privacy preserving, you know, when we do data mining and try to find out what the people are up to, or just like in the system, we want to find out what these processes are up to. Some processes may want to be private, not divulge what they are doing, okay? Or some people in the real world, we want to maintain their privacy. And so when you talk about privacy, it means different things to different people. In general, when you talk about privacy in the healthcare, we think about privacy in the healthcare or financial, where we release information about ourselves. So in, in terms of the system, privacy means that if the system, if the process says it's fine to monitor it, then we monitor the process. If the process says, I don't want to be monitored, you, you, sh you shouldn't really monitor that process. Okay? So in the real world, if I say I don't want my information to go out, then... You know, I want my healthcare records and my financial records to be private. However, that's not the privacy I, I teach for the uh, for the air at various air force bases as well as uh, FCA, Armed Forces Communications Electronics Association. Give some classes on data mining and security and so on. But there, when they talk about privacy, it is very different. For them, privacy is that the FBI wants to protect the information about. Uh, the U.S. citizens say, and not give the information to a British uh, law enforcement, Scotland Yard, or not give that information to even the CIA or the British intelligence. So they want to protect the privacy of the U.S. citizens. But they, but the data has already been gathered. Okay, so FBI will decide what information to release. So again, that sort of becomes a confidentiality problem, not privacy in terms of the way we look at privacy. So what they tell me 
and that that's what Elisa Bertino and I have been and with a colleague in 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 California we've been trying to have a workshop at NSF which is getting dragged and the, you know we are hoping that uh, uh, you know we'll have this workshop because what what the government uh, People, when they take my classes, they tell, they tell me privacy-preserving data mining or what you are talking about privacy is not going to help us at all because we want to have all the data, okay? So we don't want to, you know, protect, you know, not that we don't want to, but we want to have all of the data. We want to determine what private information we want to release to another agency, okay? If you don't have all the original data, so-and-so is... Uh, you know, coming from this place and this uh, age and this much money and has, uh, uh, you know, this sort of disease. If you don't want, you know, that information, we, we keep it. But we will dec decide how we are going to release. So doing privacy-preserving data mining, they say, uh, is not going to help because the original data they want to keep. Okay, so that's something, you know, so closely related. Whenever you talk about data mining for security, monitoring a process, or monitoring a person, you have to then worry about also, or be concerned about the privacy uh, consequences. Okay, so I think that's that's uh, that's it for me. I think we only have like what two, three minutes. Yeah. So I'll be happy to answer questions. Yes. Um, I guess I have two questions. The first question is: It seems like most of the research that has been done focuses on. Um, after the fact or the incident's response, meaning that once you have the code, then it, you probably already knew it was some kind of malicious code once you get to that point, if you're going to yeah. check if it's malicious or not. Yeah. Now, if you want to make it dynamic, where, how can you make it dynamic so that you can detect whether it's malicious code or not? I guess that's the first question. Yeah. And the second question is, ha has there been any data sets in which, so the big example I would use is send mail. Yes. Send mail at some point, everyone was using it, but they did not know that there was malicious code inside of it. Yeah. So has there been any huge data sets or any huge source code data sets that might have included some kind of malicious code to see whether the algorithms used can detect some, like a small amount of malicious code in a large amount of code that's not malicious at all? Okay. So the second question, I think, okay, the first question is uh, we are looking at things in terms of detection but not in terms of prevention okay or ahead of time before the attack happens okay um, okay so prevent i mean much of the work research actually has focused on that intuition detection right there has been some work on prevention and the prevention part also again some of the things like honeypots i think although i call it offensive would be more the prevention because we want to set up these things to find out who are the people who are flocking into our systems. Okay, so that could be considered to be a prevention. So in terms of what we are planning to do uh, for prevention, the runtime analysis, so when the, actually when the program's running, but we haven't developed, we are having some discussions, but unfortunately we don't have any, uh, any solutions yet for the, for the prevention. And there is, uh, there isn't, but there is some work, but uh, again, many people, because, again, the, the detection part is far less uh, complicated than the prevention part, okay? So now prevention with the honeypots and maybe looking at the runtime analysis, you know, hopefully maybe if I come next year for a talk, you know, I might be able to discuss on the prevention. The second one, I think that we have, 
in the in the not in in, in the parts that I didn't discuss, we may have some answer to that question. You know, looking at the email features, um, you know, does the email have HTML signatures, tags, and so on? So your question then is, in terms of the data sets, is there are there data, huge data sets where a small amount is the malicious, right? And the rest is not malicious. Well, like for example, uh, a, the source code for SendMail when it was released so that it could be installed. I mean, uh, for the purpose of email, or or yeah. think of it as any other application. Um, it was a normal application that anyone uses it, but it actually had malicious code inside of it. So people, so attackers were able to use it without people knowing that it did have malicious code in it. Okay. So, so I was, I, yeah. So I didn't know whether anywhere in there you tried to figure out whether you can find an anomaly in sort of a normal, you know, a, a normal data set that might have some sort of small malicious code that can have a large impact. Okay. So if this system should work on the, the, doing the email analysis, which I didn't mention, uh, looking at all of the outgoing emails and ex extracting features, if this malicious code is a feature that we have extracted, uh, then this particular technique, which I did not talk about, should, should work. Okay? But what I don't, I don't want to mislead you and say we have, because what I think it should, because what we have, but whether the test data has uh, whether it works for a small amount of malicious code in a huge piece of mass of data uh, or code, that, uh, that part I don't know. But it does this particular technique, which I did not mention, which is our PAKDD paper, should it's a feature-based techniques for auto-detection of novel email worms. Okay, that's our first paper. So it should, it should work, but, um, you know, I cannot sort of confirm for sure. Chris, do you have a question? Yeah, uh, quick question on this. Uh, the environment you're looking at where you're dealing with coalition partners yes. would seem to me that it's a constrained environment Let's to begin with. You have uh, a limited number of partners and a limited number of things they're supposed to be doing. Yes. Uh, does, that, does, that help the, uh, does that help the problem in terms of uh, kind of... If someone's doing something malicious, it's it, rather than hiding it in general traffic, they're hiding it in a, a more specific set of traffic. Is, is that something you've taken into account in your experiments? Okay, so I, that's a very good question. Okay, so the question is, right, we are, we are saying we are doing this in the context of assured information sharing. But I have to really sort of confess something. Uh, okay, so the thing is, Okay, while we are looking at uh, uh, trustworthy, untrustworthy, when it comes to this, I think what is, what is happening is that we are, we are doing the research and trying to send, bring this into this environment, rather than looking at this environment and then trying to develop techniques to, to fit into this. Okay, so it's a little, little bit not, a little misleading when I say that this is really defensive operations and assured information sharing when really the, the focus is on, on this research, looking at data mining. So let's look at this environment. So what we are trying to say, we have an untrustworthy partner. What this partner might be doing is, uh, good question, partner might be doing is you know, putting some sort of virus and worms and so on. So here we have these techniques that will, that will maybe detect whether our partner, because our assumption is that we are connected in this environment in this 
coalition environment is where the, the malicious code is coming from. But what we should also do is from which untrustworthy partner it's coming. So you're right. You can ask the question, this is, these techniques can work in any, any untrustworthy environment, but not just in a coalition environment. So I think what we, what we should do, uh, and that's a good point, is to get this into the coalition, try to figure out from where this, this piece of uh, malicious code is coming. So you're right. When I say that this is, you know, it, it's also the interest of the, the students too, right, it's trying to you know, develop the student is very interested in developing all these tools and techniques, and 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 some out of the I am more interested in bringing into this environment. So something that we we will be doing. Okay, that's a very good point, Chris. So I have a question to you are the experts in privacy, if you don't mind. And that's when I said that the the government says when I teach these classes that privacy. Okay, again. We are, develop, we are discussing privacy within this context of data mining, right? So when it comes to privacy, the whole idea of privacy preserving data mining and so on is of little use because the government already has the data. The fact that you are, you are having AIDS or you are 50 years old or whatever is not going to, I mean, we cannot hide that. So the whole idea of privacy preserving data mining is to keep the data, right, uh, the original data and perturb, randomize, whatever, and uh, apply these techniques. Uh, that's that's one approach. Yes. Uh, another approach, which more of the work here follows the second approach, is that ties into this coalition environment. Uh, yeah. The idea is rather than directly sharing the data within the coalition, you collaboratively compute to to compute the, the data results. mining results. So even within relatively trusted partners, uh, it, it saves you from, you know, you have certain information, another partner has certain information, you don't have to give that data to anybody to, to do that. You can still get results that come out of combining the data. It's the and whole so it's, idea, so I think the crypto cryptographic checksum method, yeah. uh, multi-party computation, yes. is Ty probably the, the way to go in this environment. Yeah. Right, you don't give out the data, uh, but end result, they all have to work together in order to solve this problem, yes. and so the the end result is given. So that that really makes sense. Okay, so this is sort of the biggest uh, biggest challenge, and then I'm no, uh, you know, you all are doing a lot of work in this too. Uh, uh, Arif, well, Arif is also the question, yeah. right? Arif and then Arif, yeah, yeah. Uh, confidentiality. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, providing access to the information yes. to your partner uh, based on the content. And Could be content, based on, on yeah. Context. Based on context as well, confidentiality. So suppose I, I probably can view it as a content-based and context-driven yeah. control mechanism in which uh, content are to be filtered. Okay. Uh, and depending on the context in which you are trying to provide access to. Okay. Partners. So that the whole thing, we can have a lot of discussions on confidentiality, privacy, and trust based on this. Confidentiality to me is the system decides, based on the policy, system decides what information it's going to be, it's going to release to the particular user, depending on the policy's user credentials. Privacy is about I decide, system will tell me these are my privacy policies. I will decide, should I agree with this? Then should I give, give my... Uh, my information to the to the 
to the website or whatever. Trust is, trust is all about, okay, you can give out the information, but you trust that person. Or I can give my information to the website, do I trust the website? Okay, so they are very, so, very, so closely connected, but privacy to the government is very different. It's what, like, again, there's a confidentiality problem too. The government with respect to privacy, it depends very much on the part of the government. So, for example, uh, with respect to what tends to happen is they have certain rules that they have to follow. Mm -hmm. And that's all they're concerned is about whether they meet the rules, uh, not whether they can do better or whether the rules are really necessary the way they are and they, you know, and, and the rules are impeding them. Right. And uh, so that's so why, is, yeah. you know, looking and saying how much, how much are we losing because of these policies, I think is a, is a very interesting thing as well. Right. RF, do you have a? Yeah, I think in Hippocratic databases, basically you store the data there. So, yes. for example, the FBI can ha have such database and then I think that what remains is to define the purpose uh, and roles for each p piece of the data. So I can entrust the, the Hippocratic de database with the data, yeah. but I think what remains is to define the roles and purposes for and the recipients for, for the who will use this data for what purpose. Right. So I think that part, if it's defined, then I think it then achieves it what you, you know. Yeah. And then we also have to worry about privacy processes. Um, Randy, unfortunately, I have because I have, uh, Professor Bertino is taking Elisa is taking me to the airport, and my flight is at eight o'clock uh, tonight. So I don't know whether we can make it, right? Five thirty sharp. Yeah. Well, we should, yeah. We. Yeah. Well, we I'm thank here. you very much. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed uh, giving and getting all your feedback. Yeah. And please send send, send us an email if you want, uh, you know, copies of the presentations. I have to be at work tomorrow morning at 